to the Red Dog Road Podcast, a program for people seeking a deeper perspective on the outdoors, sports, and personal performance. And now, here is your host, Nick Pinizzato. Hello, friends, and thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. This is episode five. It'll be an interview with my friend and outdoor writer, Pat Durkin. I met up with Pat this past week at the Southeast Year Study Group meeting, meeting in Nashville, and it was just a perfect opportunity to have him on the show, so we're looking forward to that. But right now, I want to talk about how excited I am to have my co-host on board, Mr. Mike Groman. Mike, how are you? I'm great. I'm glad to be here and very excited to be part of this podcast. Yeah, I, I appreciate you jumping in with both feet. I had mentioned on one of the earlier episodes about it'd be great to have you on, and you heard that and said, yeah, I think I'll do it. And the next thing I know, we're talking equipment, and now you're all set up there, so you're you're ready to rock and roll. I definitely believe so. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll have some fun with this for sure, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll make a lot of mistakes, but I'm sure we'll also get a lot better as time goes on, so looking forward to that for sure. And uh, since we last talked, uh, I was at the Southeast Tier Study Group meeting in Nashville, and that's where really a lot of the top whitetail biologists in the country go each year uh, to, to talk deer, talk research. There are a lot of student presenters from a lot of the, the big-time wildlife biology universities there, and they present, and that's always exciting to see some of the just excellent young talent that's out there that'll be stepping in and leading the way for for deer management and not being not being a scientist not being a a uh, a biologist i really enjoy that because it kind of gives me a chance to geek out and learn some things that go well beyond what you would see in your typical hunting magazine or hunting video so i enjoy that and seeing friends and colleagues and uh so that was that was certainly a a a good time for me and uh mike what, what stood out for you in your week this week Well, for my week this week, it's been a little hectic. As you mentioned, I did have that accident on some icy roads a couple Mondays ago, and my week has been pretty much vehicle shopping, looking over reviews and trying to decide what's going to be the next vehicle I purchase here. So that's been occupying the majority of my time. And then secondarily, it's been getting ready for class every week. I have my own classes I'm responsible for in regards to teaching for the students, but uh, I also have class on Saturday for myself. So it's been a busy week. We're ramping up to mid-semester break. And so I'm trying to use this time to get ahead so that I can at least have a little breathing room here in the next week or two. So it's interesting. So you're the teacher, but you're also the student at the same time. That has to be an interesting dynamic. It is uh, because it really makes me uh, sensitive or in tune to my students because uh, you definitely can appreciate the workload that is uh, placed on you and making sure that you're getting all that done and still trying to you know live your life. And uh, you almost forget when it's your course that you're trying to teach to the students because it's so vitally important to you, but they also have two, three, four other classes. And so with me being a student and having to take two separate classes, you really have to appreciate their time and try and really just whittle it down to what's important for that week for them. Yeah, well, I'm sure they appreciate your perspective on that. I, I remember when I was going through grad school and trying to work just how work how much work it was and now you've added on top of that having to find a new vehicle and all of that so you've uh, certainly had a busy week but still found time to jump on the on the podcast which is great and I appreciate that um I want to mention too that I, 
in terms of my week, I had a, a birthday on Saturday, so I'm 44 years old now. Happy birthday. And um, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I traveled back to Pennsylvania to see family, and it's about a yeah, between three and a half to four hour drive, just depending on which uh, family we're going to see first, mine or my wife's. And uh, about two and a half hours into the trip, our son, Will, who had just turned 15 months old, I just, I'm looking at him in the mirror and all of a sudden he just starts vomiting and I'm not talking. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's not a spit up by the way. I mean, this is like, yeah, this is high velocity and there's a lot of it. And uh, we're in the, we're, we're literally kind of in the middle of nowhere when he does this and, and we pull over and we see the damage that's done and it, uh, Let's just say that was a real. If there, if there are parenting badges that you earn along the way, uh, we we should have definitely earned something or a trophy for what we had to deal with because we did end up finding a little Rite Aid, like a tiny little Rite Aid in this small little town, uh, just on the edge of the Ohio West Virginia border, and and trying to clean up that mess and get him cleaned up. And of course, he's crying, and you're worried is he sick or did he just get some car sickness or maybe he just had an upset stomach, but. Uh, we we did survive that, and it was uh, it was kind of a, a rite of passage, I guess. Probably something that you've experienced, Mike, having three kids of your own. Oh, definitely. There is always that. Um, I, I I think it's hilarious that you call it uh, a, a badge. I mean, so technically now you have your roadside vomit badge, because uh, I mean. <laughs> We've had we've had many of those. I mean, my favorite one is my wife uh, went to Murray Honda in Dubois, Pennsylvania, to buy a car back in two thousand and one, and she took my two daughters with her. I was occupied doing something else at the time, and she just signed the paperwork. They just handed her her keys, and one of the big things for that car dealership is they they stand you in front of your car and take a picture. You know, like it's a big deal. The kids had balloons. Gabby's standing inside. It was a minivan. The door is open. Gabby's standing just inside of that minivan. She's probably going to kill me for saying this, but if she doesn't christen that car by going number one, right down her legs into the car. So the car oh. was minutes old and it becomes christened, you know? So it's, it's one of those rites of passage for parenthood. What are you going to do? But just kind of look back on it and laugh. Yeah, that's about all you can do or else you're going to cry. So uh, I'm sure that won't be the last incident for sure. No, not at all. Uh, Exactly. Uh, So with that, now that we're all caught up, let's go ahead and take our walk down Red Dog Road this week. This week on the Walk Down Red Dog Road, I want to focus on the Olympics now that they're over. And I know I'm sure most of us listening or most of you listening here watched at least a portion of them. And one of the things that I've always appreciated about the Olympics is seeing the athletes succeed. Now, of course, with success, there's failure. There are other athletes. Not everyone succeeds, right? There are only so many gold medals to go around. But just the the sheer uh, look of accomplishment and enjoyment on these people's faces. And, and one of the things I want to point out here, though, is that when you're watching the Olympics, for example, you're only seeing the brightest lights. You're only seeing that final competition. What you're not seeing is the amount of work and dedication that goes into it, the blood, the sweat, the tears. I've had the fortune of knowing a few Olympians, and I can tell you that it is a, it's a full-time job for them to train, to get ready to, to compete, and then to let alone win a medal. And like I said, we only see the brightest lights, but some things that really stood out to me in Miss Olympics, of course, Lindsey Vaughn, the skier, um, the fact that that woman 
in the physical condition she's in, having been beat up and bruised and battered, found a way to get back to the Olympics. She dedicated her performance to her grandfather who had recently passed away. Um, she didn't, she didn't win a bunch of gold medals, but she did win some medals. Um, and, and it really had what I would still call a great Olympics, even though she probably felt like she should have won more golds. Uh, the U.S. women's hockey team, when it looked like they were down and out against Canada with about six minutes left, tying the, tying the game and then winning the game in a shootout and what is just an intense rivalry. And there was all of this, um, I guess, big story made of the of the woman from Canada that, that when they put the silver medal around her neck, she immediately took it back off. And a lot of people were very critical of her for that. And I actually, I guess you could make the argument that she maybe could have waited a few extra seconds or maybe till they left the ice. But to me, it just showed that pure desire to win and all the work and hard work that she must have put in. And I can, I can just, you could just feel her pain when she did that. So we want, we always want our athletes to be, to show raw emotion and how they really feel and tell us how they feel. But when they do it, then we get critical of them. And I actually just thought that that was a really interesting moment in the Olympics of the U S men's curling team winning a gold medal out of nowhere is a cool story. And there's so many cool stories behind the guys on the team. And Nigeria has a women's bobsled team. If you can imagine that, uh, so I made sure to watch that for sure. And then, and then maybe the most compelling story of all was the, the unification of the Korean team, that it was just the Republic of Korea competing, not North Korea and South Korea, and what the future might hold for, for relations with uh, between those two countries that are essentially at war. I thought that that was a really um, just an incredible moment from the Olympics. And, and really, it just reminds me of just the importance to pushing yourself to greatness. And, and most of that happens if you want to become great at something, not just good at it. If you want to become excellent, most of that happens through your hard work when nobody's watching you do it. And I've learned in my life through a number of different lessons that there are no shortcuts. You know, you get out of it what you put in and that goes for anything. That goes from whether or not you want to lose weight or if you want to do well on an exam, if you want to have a good hunting season, whatever it may be, a promotion at your job, you're going to get there most easily by working your butt off to get there. Not, no one's going to hand it to you. And it's, there are no shortcuts. And that's just a lesson I have learned and just something as you go about your week here, thinking about your week ahead and the things you have on your plate, uh, just, just keep that in mind. Or if you have a longer term goal, remember what it takes to get there. Think back to some of the things that you probably saw in the Olympics and, and just imagine the amount of hard work that went into that. So uh, that's our walk down Red Dog Road for this week. And uh, Mike, I'll ask you just in your life, your experience with getting out what you put in. Well, I remember back when I first went to college, I was uh, recruited to play football. And as a freshman, everything seems so easy to remember. And then as you go on into your sophomore and junior year, things kind of blend out. But I remember the very first um, team mass that we had before our very first football game. And one of the uh, priests that was providing mass, he said, okay, all of you, I want you to stand up. And what I want you to do is reach up as high as you possibly can. And so, you know, everyone puts both hands up in the air and, um, you know, we kind of look around at each other and kind of wonder where is this going? And he says, okay, now everyone is reach up as high as they possibly can. Is that correct? And we all look at each other and we kind of nod. Yes, that's correct. And then he says, all right, great. He says, now what I want you to do 
his reach and he holds his fingers and his, his index finger and thumb about an inch apart. And he says, now reach up this much higher. And every last one of us were able to reach up that much higher. And that really struck a chord with me because the directions were very, very clear. And yet there was still a little bit more in the tank. There was still a little bit more to be had when you really, really push yourself. And, um, that was kind of the message he was trying to deliver. And uh, to this day, that really stuck with me is that you might think you've given everything, but until you've really tried, there might be more there to give. And that's what can really lead to some success. Yeah. I just love that story because uh, there, there always is more in the tank, no matter uh, how difficult it may seem. So that's, that's a great story. And I appreciate you adding that for sure, Mike. Uh, so with that, that's actually a great transition because we're going to talk, uh, we're going to go ahead and jump into the interview here in a second with Pat Durkin, uh, who was my guest. He's a freelance outdoor writer who I've gotten to know over the last few years. And, and this is someone that has worked very hard to, to get where he's gotten in his career. He has a really cool background, as you'll hear in the interview, ranging from newspapers to major magazines, mostly writing about deer, but, but certainly outdoors hunting. He even covered the Green Bay Packers <laughs> for a time. So uh, he's one of my absolute favorite writers, though, because he has a no-nonsense approach. A lot of the times when you see people comment on his writing, uh, they give him a hard time because he says the things that some people don't want to hear, but they're, but they're true. Um, so on top of that, he's a stand up guy, truly one of my favorite people in the outdoor industry in terms of outdoor writers. And, uh, Mike, you had a chance to hear the interview. What did you think of when you heard it? I thought it was a, a really wonderful interview. I've never met Pat personally, but just listening to him talk about his children and, and all the great, great experiences and opportunities that he's had in life um, really was intriguing. I mean, I think everyone's going to really enjoy listening to this, but uh, one of the things that I really appreciated uh, and that kind of links into what you were talking about in regards to the Olympics is if everyone listens for him to, he says it over and over again, and that's the your best effort. I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things that, uh, he seems very, very passionate about. And, um, again, that kind of links back into your story with the Olympics of, you know, putting your, you have one chance to put your best effort forward. And, uh, that really struck a chord with me. It was, it was really, really, uh, a nice interview. Yeah, I think people enjoy it too. And I'm glad you liked it. So, uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump to the interview with Pat Durkin. Pat, it's good to see you, and I appreciate you coming on to the show. Uh, this is something you and I talked about first back, I think, at SHOT Show. Yeah. And now that we're in person here together, we're at the Southeast Deer Study Group in Nashville, Tennessee, which has been, we're at the end of it now. So yeah. we sat through all those sessions, which were pretty good. They were really good, actually, and a lot of cool things we learned there. But this was a great opportunity to get you on the show and interview you and have some conversations. So this should be fun. I've been looking forward to this. And I'm just going to start by having you tell our listeners about you and your background. Yeah, I, I um. I started working for a newspaper back in 1983 in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Um, I, I started working there in college, actually. I was at school there at, at the University of Wisconsin at Oshkosh. And I knew back in those days that the way you get, you get in the outdoor page is you go through the sports editor. And so I, I covered high school sports and um, college sports. I even covered the Green Bay Packers a little bit. But they knew my interest was the outdoors, and they eventually worked my way into where I covered the outdoors about, about um, half-time to quarter-time, depending on, on the year I was there. And then um, while I was there, I, I came across, I was already, I was aware of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. 
because I would grew up in Wisconsin, and by the time I was in the Navy, and started, people started sending me these copies of Deer and Deerning magazine, so I was aware of that magazine. Well, it turns out they were just up the road in Appleton, Wisconsin. And it was two guys that had started this magazine as kind of a newsletter-type operation. But as they, they got their word out there and people started reading it, it became a regular magazine with um, you know, basically a national following. And so I'd interview those guys right now and then on different different issues, especially their um, editor was Al Hofacker. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed Al a number of times on different deer hunting issues and um, and things that hunters like talking about, things like the October lull. Does, is it really right. something, you know? And and I always loved talking talk to Al Hofacker, especially because he's a real analytical guy. You know, he, he, he didn't come to the Southeast Deer Group meeting very often, I don't think. But he read research. He liked reading research and getting into that stuff. And so then um, I was at the, at the Ashcash Northwestern for like a, you know, seven or eight years when they called me from deer and deer hunting, asked me if I would be interested in, in working for them. Interviewed me, and I went up there and talked to them a few times, and they initially hired me as associate editor. And then I learned once I got there that basically were trying to groom me to become editor. And so I, about a year into that job, I, um, in, I they hired me in 1991. And by 1992, I, I was editor. They, they made me editor of the, the magazine. So I did that then for almost um, 11 years total. And then I um, went into, I started freelancing. I, I, by the time I was, by the time 2001 came along, um, my time at deer and deer hunting came to an, an abrupt end, which I, I think that happens in, in, in publishing. And I, but the thing I liked about it almost, almost instantly was I, I started working, um, I, I should say all through that time at Deer and Deer Magazine, I kept writing my newspaper column. I, start, I started a weekly outdoor column, you know, back about 84. And, and that's about the time I started going weekly with it. And the whole time I was at Deer and Deer Hunting, I was fortunate enough to, uh, I kept that newspaper column going. Because I, I always knew that in my heart, I was a newspaper guy. You know, I, I loved I loved covering stuff. I loved interviewing people. And it really worked out well. It was a good mix for, for, for me at Deer and Deer Hunting because it was much more of a... Um, um, I'd say research-driven, interview-driven, um, journalist-type type writing that we were doing at Deer and Deerning Magazine, at least those of us who wrote for it regularly as a, as a editor and, um, and copy editor, too. I had kind of a, a real journalistic-type approach to it. And then, um, so the time I, my time I was done at Deer and Deerning Magazine, I had a good background. I had a good client base built up among the newspapers. I was writing for I think about four or five newspapers at that time. So it was sustaining itself on its own, the, the newspaper work, just as a columnist. And then um, but at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't ready to, to, to stay at an at a economic level where I was happy just making a you know, newspaper um, column, column freelance wage, which isn't very much, never, never was, never will be. And so I, I, I was fortunate that I, I had a good background with people like Jay McIninch at the Archery Trade Association. And Jay, when I became available as on a freelance basis, um, picked me up to be basically his um, chief copy editor. And he'd write stuff and I'd edit it for him and clean it up and tighten it down. And, and so I always had work with the ATA for, you know, it's going on you know, 17, 18 years now where I've always been a, a contract worker with them. 
And that's kind of where I'm at now. I still do a lot of, I still do quite a bit of magazine writing too, but these days I've gotten it down to where I like writing for American Hunter magazine, that, that NRA's magazine, because they, they, they assign me articles they know I like writing. You know, I, I talked, I sit down with their editor once a year at the SHOT Show, Scott Olmsted, and Scott and I talk and uh, have a few ideas on what he wants me to, he'll look at my ideas and we'll talk about them and then he'll say, okay, write, write this one, you know, you know, in a few months from now I'll get my assignment for the year and I'll get, I'll get a list of things to, to work on. And then there's other magazines too, I, I, I think I I want to expand a little bit into other, some, a couple other magazines, but I'm kind of, I'm lucky at this point, I'm... I'm 62 now, and so I don't have to scramble as much to find work. You know, work tends to find me now because I've been at it for so long. People find out what my strengths are, and they, and they it, we find you know who's compatible with each other, and, and it's kind of a it's a nice position to be in now. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. And you probably said about 10 different things there that I could spend the rest of this interview digging into. Thank you. Uh, which is a, you have a really cool background for sure, and you've just been into so many things and. Uh, Man, like I said, we could explore just about any of those. Uh, and it's interesting, one of the things you pointed out that I, the listeners probably, many people don't understand that there's a pretty significant difference between writing a magazine article versus writing something for a newspaper. And uh, we'll get we'll get into that okay. a little bit more in here to our discussion. I want to talk specifically about some of the stuff you've been writing for the newspapers, uh, which is really good stuff. But at any rate, it's different. You've had a lot of experience in both of those, uh, clearly. So... Uh, and another thing you didn't mention, I know that just a couple of days ago, I think you ran a marathon, right? Okay, right. So, you, you know, there, there's this whole other side of you. I didn't even realize you ran marathons. So. I, I don't make money at that, so I guess it doesn't come up. <laughs> We're not going to see you in the Olympics anytime no. soon, though. No. No. So, uh, again, that's uh, just another awesome little hobby, I guess you could say. Thank you. Um, so, with that, you've had all these years of experience uh, going back to 1983, specifically in, in what you've been doing now. So there's been a lot of things that have happened in the hunting and outdoors world over that time. Just some of the biggest changes that stand out to you over that time from 1983 to yeah. here we are to 2018. Well, one thing that one thing that jumped out at me just now when you were saying that was um, the trail cameras. You know, I, th- I remember back when we were at Deer and Deer Magazine, even in the 90s, we thought it was pretty cool stuff when you run a thread across a, a deer trail and deer yeah. come along and trip it, you know. Um, the other thing that, that comes to mind is, is, um, the, the bowls themselves, you know, we had compound bowls, you know, I, I got my first compound bow in 1974 is, uh, Allen compound, hundred pound, 20, I think it's 20% let off on those. And we thought that was really cool. You know, that you could draw 50 pound bowls in a whole 40. We thought this is incredible. Um, and, and then I think by the time we got into the eighties, I remember um, you get a bowl, a new compound bowl every three, three, four years or so because the technology was changing enough to where they're getting better and better. You know, you didn't have the torque as much as as time went on. All the things that would throw you off and throw a, a shot off. Where I remember, um, I remember there's times with some bowls I knew I could shoot 20, 20 yards very effectively, but at forty yards the arrow would start start drifting, and then you learn later that the arrow refs have gotten better. The um, the broadheads have gotten much better. You know, boy, it's nuts. And the broadheads we used to shoot, they were twenty yard, twenty yard uh, max for most of us because they 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 planed, and you'd play around and try to get them to straighten out. And I never had the person. I never had the interest in tweaking things the way some guys do to get that that good. So that's changed. Another one that that I'm real proud of myself for um, helping change 
was um, the, the um, tree stand safety. When I was at Deer and Deerning Magazine, we surveyed our readers because we realized tree stand accidents were, were hurting and maiming a lot of people. And most people, the most they would do is wear a, a utility belt with a rope tied to it. That was their safety device, you know. And and we did the survey of our readers. And it was just, uh, I tell you, Nick, you, you'd laugh because you, you're, uh, you, you know how, how to work with, with um, big groups of people. But we, we did. And it kind of got back to the deer and deer hunting core, the root the stuff they used to do. They used to do a lot of reader interaction stuff that they're, when they're the stump sitters. And I had this idea that the stump sitter guys used to do real, just, you know, basically pick up your back of the envelope type stuff and, and ask questions, start asking people, survey things, and the, and the information start pouring in just spontaneously. So we had the survey on tree stand safety, a two-page survey, a front and back of one page. They had to tear it out of the, of the magazine, you know, and basically slice it out, and then um, put it in, the, in their own envelope, address their own envelope, it wasn't a business envelope, and mail it into us. But yeah, so it wasn't scientific in that you couldn't use that stuff and draw projections on how many people are being injured because it was self-reported, you know. But the thing that we could use that information for that was really insightful was how are these accidents happening, you know? And we we learned, and it's still true today, and unfortunately, is that people are getting hurt mainly not because they fall asleep while sitting in the stand. They they're, they're falling out while they're stepping in and stepping out. And that, that little climb right there, and then they're swinging the leg on, those, those are the two areas that it's most dangerous. And, and we also pointed out in that, in that research that um, we got a hold of some Air Force um, studies on, on how long people last hanging, in, hanging up suspended from a, 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 a platform or from a tree if they parachute in, you know. And what, what, what the Air Force learned is that people who were relying on a, a a belt to, for safety, they quickly would jackknife, and usually within 30 seconds to a minute, they'd be passed out, and then soon after that, their diaphragm would start collapsing up, and they'd be dead. And so it, was, it was a rotten way to go, but it, but people were dying that way, and sure enough, that's what was happening in these tree stands. So like when we um, came up with that survey, and we started reporting all this stuff nationally, um, that ch it changed the, the, the safety harness that we that today has nothing to have a full body harness. Everybody gives them well, gives them out with a tree stand. A lot of the ones that are the best ones are the ones you buy separately on your own. But uh, um, but until you know when we did our survey back in 1993, this was the only full body harnesses you could find were the construction guide to stuff with big brass buckles and and orange and blue webbing is just I have a picture of me somewhere of wearing one of these harnesses just for safety reasons so or for a demonstration reason so that's those are some things that come to mind for me for what's changed yeah yeah I mean and the safety one's interesting it, it amazes me now I think we've done a much better job of getting people into the full body harness mm -hmm. but what we aren't doing still is getting them to be connected from the ground to right. the stand with, yeah. with a haul line yeah. so that's the next step yeah I think. It, it's I think that's gonna be one of those things where it's just not convenient and, and if something's not convenient it's hard to get people to do it. I mean, because I think, especially those of us who move around a lot, mm. unless you had these things already connected up there, it's hard to stay connected. But I do like the things. One thing I do is I, um, I have use a tether, and I hook it on as if I'm, if I'm using screwing steps, 
or, or from using a, um, a climbing ladder with pegs or it might be. And anything I can slip that little tether over as I'm going up ahead of me, that, that helps a little bit. So Yeah, it gives you more protection yeah, than nothing I think, for sure. I think it's like riding, riding a motorcycle. If, you're, if, you, if it doesn't scare you, if you're not scared of that, of that fall, you, you'll never be that careful. And so I was, I guess I always encourage people, you know, either you're scared or you're hurt. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Because what's really inconvenient is falling out of that tree and either killing yourself or changing your life or a bunch of people around you. And I know I have a hall line on every single one of my stands. Yeah. It's just a habit I got into and I'm glad I did. But yeah, that's obviously a big change. Archery from everything, from the straightness of the arrows, from the tip, from the point tip of the arrow all the way to the bow has changed dramatically. And so just been so many really cool things and we could, man, we could go on forever on that one. Um, but let's talk about changes in in communication about okay. hunting. Yeah. I love the old stories about deer and deer hunting because I was a longtime subscriber to that magazine for the reasons that you said. And that was, it was a publication that got into the things that you didn't get in a lot of magazines. I wanted to learn mm-hmm. the reasons behind why we hunt deer a certain way, for example. And mm-hmm. deer and deer hunting did that. Um, but biggest changes now in how you report the deer news what has changed in that regard since the first time you started writing newspaper articles? Maybe maybe it hasn't changed that yeah. much. Um, I think that for me, for me, the biggest change over the years was just the idea of how you would um, submit your, your your information to the newspaper. I, I was when I was in college, we were still working on typewriters, and then by the time I was working at the newspaper, we had these little. Um, they were made by Radio Shack. I think they were like a, a little computer that had, you'd see three lines at a time as you typed. And then when the basketball game would get over, you'd, you'd go home and then is the days of the old um, um, phone with the little um, round ends on, what you, on like a mouthpiece and an earpiece. And you had these little cups that would slide on top of that mouthpiece and, and earpiece. And then you'd, you had to put some code in front, in front of your article. And then you press <laughs> a button. And it, it would take like three minutes to transmit your article yeah. on, to the newspaper, and 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 of course we thought that was that was just magic. We thought that was magic because we were used to standing in phone booths and calling it in and writing it as you go, you know, with your notes and making the person that they're in the line kind of do the final edits for you. So that was a big change for us. But uh, as far as the hunting reporting though, I've I've always kind of taken the same. I've always pretty much to take the same approach that I try to, um, I don't like writing off the cuff. I, and I don't respect people who write nothing but off the cuff. I, I think when you're, when you're getting paid, you know, like, like I try to get, I try, I always try to get paid. Um, you're getting paid. Someone's paying you to, to, to write. You, I think you owe them your best effort every time. That means interviewing people, reading, reading, whatever you can get your hands on, sitting through two days of of seminars like today. Yeah, I saw you taking tons of notes yeah. the last two days. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I record every, yeah, every you recorded t- it. I record every talk and I, like the ones that end up turning into articles, I, I transcribe that, you know, and and that's another cool thing you can do now is some of the stuff, the software still isn't that good about transcribing accurately. So I still, I have this one little software program I still transcribe a lot with where I just slow it down to the point where they sound like they're drunk when they're talking because it's going so slow. <laughs> yep. But then I sit there and whack away with because I'm, I'm a pretty fast but not accurate typist and I can uh, keep up with them. So I, I I really believe what's made, what's carried my career, I think, is always a fact. I like reporting. I, I believe in reporting. Yeah. And I, I believe in um, journalism. I, you know, I know journalism ethics is a um, oxymoron for a lot of people, but I believe in that. That I, I think, I like to think that um, when I get something in the article, if I make a mistake, 
I own it. I'll, I call back. I call people back and apologize. I correct it. But I like to think I don't make too many really, um, you know, correction-worthy mistakes. I, I, I work hard at that. And I, I think, you know, if you can ever get to a point in your career where, where a mistake doesn't bother you and really eat at you, you're in the wrong job. Yeah. You know, so I, that's my approach on that. And I, and I still, to this day, I... I still think I, I think that's why I've lasted this long too. I was just going to say that, um, you know, it's interesting and you're, you're leading me into my next question here. And that is some people would say that the stuff you write can be edgy. Mm-hmm. It's certainly thought provoking. And one of the things I really like about the stuff you write and particularly how lately you've been covering chronic wasting disease very heavily last mm-hmm. while, while being Wisconsin and right. being ground zero for CWD. But, um, you you aren't afraid to write a lot of times what people I think are see, or want to say, mm-hmm. but they don't say. And so I I'm in, I I think it's I think you're doing a great job when I read below one of your articles that are online and I read the comments. Yeah. And some people are pissed off <laughs> oh, in there, right? Right. right. Because I'm I'm a psychology guy, right? So I I I really am into this idea that people have biases and sometimes mm-hmm. sure. they just they just want to believe what they want to believe, right. even if it's not true. But you write factually and you report. Mm-hmm. Um. So just um, talk about that a little bit about, I mean, and you did already, but just this, this idea that if you really want to report the news, you can't be afraid of the reaction because oh, sometimes right. the truth hurts, right? Right. Yeah. I think it was, um, um, I think it was Robert Kennedy, the politician, you know, in the Kennedy family who's either it was him saying it or someone saying it about him. I read this when I was a young man that the truth is ruthless. The truth that's often ruthless. And I and I don't I don't look at myself as a ruthless person. I'm I think I'm a I'm a polite, respectful person, but I don't like um, BS. I, I don't like um, I, I don't think you I don't think readers want BS. I think readers want your best effort, your best as you the best you can ascertain the truth. That's what they want to hear. And I yeah I I get people mad at me. But I don't go out of my way. I don't sit down. I never sit down and say, I'm going to piss people off today. Right. You're not going to go after clickbait, right? You're just no, writing a story. No, yeah. Exactly. I, I I find that kind of thing really bothers me. And, mm-hmm. and I I, um, I remember people, I, I still get this a lot, that people will tell me, you just you just write that way because you, you're trying to sell newspapers. You're trying to sell magazines. And I, I, can, I can honestly say... I'm a rotten business person. I don't. <laughs> I don't understand how to sell things. I, all I know is how to how to report and how to write a column. Because a column is isn't just reporting. It's it's a lot of analysis. It's a lot of document, you know, combing and digging up. And and I I um with my I I find these iPhones just fascinating that you can go anywhere now you have a camera and you have a calculator right there you have a recorder and so like when i'm working on my newspaper column i'm constantly plugging in numbers and and running percentages and finding out because i think people like me can understand percentages you know they can they, they can't do calculations that project things and and um like you like we sat on we sat through a lot of seminars or presentations the last two days here in, mm-hmm. in nashville where you see these big calculations on, on how to estimate deer populations, how to estimate disease rates, stuff that's way over my head. But I, th- I think a good columnist takes information and doesn't dumb it down, but makes it understandable. And and I think sometimes the easiest way to make some of that stuff understandable is just do, do basic 
calculations where you take real numbers that people can can grasp. And if you don't, and you can't write over their head, you know. And I think writing, I think, I think clear. I I, I can talk about writing all day, but I think good writing is clear writing. It's it's um, basic. Small words flow tend to flow better. I think writing has a rhythm, and I think all these people who are good writers, who are good communicators, they understand rhythm. They understand uh, how a sentence, if it has to be read twice, isn't a good sentence. Yeah, that's it, right. it has to be read once and, and, and instantly grasp what, what the guy's getting at. Yeah, and I think you obviously write with that style, which I appreciate. And um, when I when I talk to crowds or address crowds or when I write, I tend to be very plain as well. Mm-hmm. But but I don't get any credit for that because I just, I truly am not any more sophisticated than that, but I take it as a compliment because yeah. you have to do it in a way that people understand. And, and, and the same way. Some of the stuff we saw the last two days is just blow your mind. But right. just the last seminar, for example, our take home messages, don't try to control coyotes because you're wasting your time, right? right? All the right. other data that right. we put up there, nobody else is going to yeah. care about. <laughs> this one, where you're in, one of the um, um, professors, doctors coming up here to, to, to do our, our podcast. And, um, he'd been to the same seminar, obviously same presentation. And, and his three, three word comment was let it go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That's all, right. all your angst over coyotes, you gotta let it go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was, that was really good for sure. So, you know, it's interesting you were talking to, I brought up clickbait and this, uh, a lot of publications or even newspapers now, they want you to write stuff and they want to measure you on how many clicks, which is obviously yeah, something yeah. that's changed a lot. But then I think back to, to someone like Jim Zumbo, for example. Right. And I don't know if you've read Zumbo's book, um, but I did. And I'm, I'm fascinated by it because a lot of the stuff that went down with Jim over the the, the, the NRA and, and all the things mm-hmm. that happened there with his comments came from, here's a man that's been an, an, an entertaining accomplished writer for a long time now being pushed out of his comfort zone right. and being told you got to write thought provoking stuff that people are going to click on. And then that leads to mm-hmm. um, doing things that are out of character and then just turns into a mess. So it's um, you've been able to get through all that, which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just do old fashioned reporting and storytelling. And, and I, as I look at young writers nowadays, I don't see a lot of that anymore. Right. It makes me kind of sad. So. Right. Yeah. Um, so, Switch gears a little bit mm-hmm. here. Um, you've seen a lot over the years. You've written about a lot, knowledgeable a ton about deer hunting, but all types of hunting. And I just ask you, we hear a lot of negative news about what's going on with hunting industry, but what are you most optimistic about? What do you What do you think looks good on the horizon? Um, I think the one thing that I find, you know, you know our, our hunter numbers are going down. And I think... Um, I don't think we're going to reverse that anytime soon. I think we're going to, we can slow it, and we can um, we can um, help people appreciate it better. And I think the one thing that I see happening in recent years, especially, is this: we've we've always known that meat is a primary reason, primary thing that people can accept, and the thing that hunters themselves are after. I mean, hunt, the meat's always been a big big part of it. Um, and I think it's neat now where you're seeing some people in our in our hunting industry, younger people, much younger than me, who are um, probably like I, I, the guys I'm thinking about are typically in their 30s and 40s. They're they're helping people understand how cool it is to hunt. You know, when I see guys like like Steve Steve Ranella, um and uh, Remy Warren, I don't, I've only met Remy in passing one time at the Shot Show. But I and I I, I follow um, like uh, Randy Newberg's 
podcast now. I've been following his stuff for a couple of years, and I've I've known Jim Shockey since the um, since my early days of deer and deer hunting. Jim wrote for me for a long time at deer and deer hunting, so I've always known Shockey. But these guys, Jim's about my age, but um, they make hunting cool. They don't apologize for it. They they they're respectful people. They're caring people. You can tell that um, these guys are good. Hardworking, honest to God, family men who, who, who aren't going to apologize for being being hunters, and they they appreciate the meat they bring home. It's a big part of their life, and, and I find that kind of connection when I see how people relate to that, and and I see young people my, like my kids' age. My kids are all between the ages of 29, 28 to, to thirty two, and when I know their friends are following Ranella's TV show. They know who Jim Shockey is. They know who Remy Warren is. They know, and the thing I've talked about Nick a few times um, that I really, I think is really nice. I'm really proud of this for those kind of guys is that I wrote a column back, oh, I had to be about 95, 1995, where I thought, basically said, it's really a shame that here we are in hunting who are who are the famous hunters in our country? No one's famous for being hunt for being hunters. They're famous for being either a rock star or a, or a, um, a, a athlete, or they got something bigger profile out there that made them famous, and they're and they're brave enough to at least say that at least acknowledge the fact that they hunt. But no one's famous for being a hunter. Well, now now you see the New York Times calling Steve Ranella, these other guys. And getting them, quoting them, in, and he's actually writes at times for the New York Times. I think here's a guy, first and foremost, is a hunter. Shockey's the same way. I don't think Jim does. I don't think Jim does much writing anymore. But um, I think that's just it's beyond beyond my dreams to know that we have people like that now happening. Twenty some years after I wrote that column in, in Wisconsin, lamenting the fact that God, this is the best we can do. That our celebrities in the hunting community. Walk out in the street and no one knows who they are. Well, yeah. I think guys like Shockey Ranella, they 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 recognize people recognize them. Yeah, absolutely. They're moving the needle a little bit yeah. and tend to get called upon. We have a national story that breaks, for example. Right. Uh, those are the people we have people that they will go to now, right. like, like Jim and, and, and Steve. And, and sure. they can talk intelligently about it. Yeah, and you mentioned Randy Newberg, yeah. he's a, a favorite of many of us as well. Yeah. Um, so we'll switch gears again, though, and mm-hmm. say, what what are your biggest concerns? Um, the big biggest concern has been, I think, a concern that's been with us a long longer time than people really think about. And it's just the idea that as we get become uh, a, this more industrialized urban community, um, it's just it's very hard to get people outdoors. It's hunting is not something you can do conveniently, and. And I didn't really fully appreciate how hard you have to work to go hunting or fishing until I started running. I started running 10 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, and I, it really struck me how when I want to go running, it's basically about a 10-minute conversion from the time I'm in my bed to the time I'm out on the road running. Well, hunting, you have to get your stuff ready the night before. Yeah. you got to have your tr- truck you know, packed and ready to go, basically. You have to have all this prep work done. You have to have been out there scouting the area. Well, I run marathons, and I, I've never been on those roads in my life. And I can just go out and run them and just follow the person in front of me. And we're, we're hunting. It takes, it, take, it takes a real commitment. And it's hard to make that kind of time commitment when you're, when you're living inside a city and you're far away from where you can hunt. It's just, you know, logistically, it's very difficult. 
And so that that concerns me. But the thing I the thing though that I I'm optimistic about is when I think about the big picture on that is I think I remember in college I was a I was a journalism major, but I took I took English as a minor, so I did a lot of reading. And, and I always remember this this um, poem by William Butler Yeats, his good Irish poet. This is 130 years ago. Right, this poem called um, I think it's called um, Stolen Child. And so it's basically a poem. It takes some work to figure out what he's saying. But what he's saying in there is that these kids in these industrialized societies, they have no connection to the outdoors. So here in this in this poem is basically these, these um, I guess it would be the, the Irish um, leprechauns or the fairies. I think it's the fairies that would steal these kids and take them out into the, into the wild <laughs> to kind of get them out of that city environment and get yep. them into the, into the woods. And I thought, well, here's Yeats, you know, this Irishman, never been to the car country, never been, you know, outside of, I mean, he's outside of his country, but he understood that something's not right here. That, you know, to, to have people connect with nature, you got to get them out of these cities, you got to get them out into, into, into the real world. And I think that real world will always exist, though. I, I, I think, yeah, we're, 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 we're how much farther along now with the technology that makes it so easy to not be aware of the outdoors. And it's made it so hard to get outdoors and so convenient to stay indoors that it's tougher than ever. But the, the, the thing that I, I, all I'm saying is that it's, it's not good, but we're still in the game. We're still, and like we just talked about a few minutes ago, we're, um, we're, at, least, at least we're aware of it. And when you're aware of a problem, you can at least address the problem. If you're ignorant of the problem, it's hard, it's hard to do much about it. Yeah, well put. And, you know, I think about as a, as a fellow runner, um, when I came here, I looked before ahead of time, just saw that there was a greenway just down the yeah, road. Yeah. I threw, a, threw my tennis shoes and a, a pair of shorts and a T-shirt in, and I was ready to go running. Yeah. Whereas if this was a, if we were going to go hunting, you can't do oh, that, right? It's, it's, yeah. And I get mad at myself sometimes as a lifetime, lifetime avid hunter. Sometimes I don't go just because you know what it's not convenient. Yeah, and I'm oh. an, and I'm a, li- a lifetime avid hunter. Oh, me so too. Imagine the newbie. Oh, me too. Yeah, it's, and yeah, and, and you and I know we can find our way around anywhere. Yes, you know, and you think a, a young person who doesn't really understand hunting is kind of intimidating. There's so much technology. I mean, so, so many different pieces of equipment that got to fit together just right yeah. to make it work, and then and then the, the whole mystery of hunting. I think how long we've been hunting, and we can go out and. Uh, I'm always amazed how many ways you can screw up a situation. And we have enough confidence that we've done it so long. We know this is part of it. Yeah. You know, that, you know, that, that usually the animal wins. Yeah. And, but a young person, a new person to it might think, oh God, I screwed this up and, and be, throw themselves down the stairs over it, literally, you know. And <laughs> well, that's true because, I mean, that made me all of a sudden what popped into my head was outdoor television, right? So what, right, we, what outdoor right. television depicts is the highlights or what, what, what most people, and we're going to get into what I really okay. like to talk about is stories, uh, okay. outdoor stories that yeah. usually the best stories don't end well, right? Right. Um, so, but outdoor television is really a highlight reel of a whole season of hunting for some people or mm-hmm. an entire hunt boiled down to a 22-minute episode. Right. It would almost be like if you were watching 
um, you never watched a full baseball game and you only watched the players when they were successful, which right. is highlights, oh, right. right? Right. And so what you lose in that is the fact that if you fail 70% of the time in baseball, you're a, you're an all-star. Yeah. You've got 300 right. for your career. I mean, exactly. you're, you're going to the hall of fame. Yeah. And in deer hunting, it's even less than that. If you really, if you really, really boiled down and I did this one time, I calculated for some crazy reason, the amount of time I spent hunting mm-hmm. versus the day I, the days I had success, and I said it's well under ten percent, right. and I like to, right. I like to feel like I'm pretty decent at doing right. it. But. Oh yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, that's that's makes it very difficult to get new people into the game for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think I would I would share that one with you in terms of big concerns. So uh, let's shift gears to okay. to what I really love to talk about, and what what I think the basis of this show, uh, what I hope for it to become, is this whole idea of what the outdoors does has done for many of us and the stories behind it. And I always tell people the the pulling the trigger, releasing the arrow is the tiniest part of this whole and this whole outdoors mm-hmm. endeavor. So think back to maybe one of your favorite outdoor memories. And it doesn't it, it could be something that happened when you were a child that led to you wanting mm-hmm. to write about the outdoors, or it might be something that happened to you last season and, yeah. and just maybe the impact that that's had on you personally. Yeah. Well, for me, it's, for me, it's, um, I could, I could tell you stories all day that had an impact on me. And I, I think, um, part of it for me is just that I'm a sentimental person. I, I've always been real sentimental. I can think of things my dad said, things, um, my grandmother lived with us and things she said that helped spark it, you know? And I, and I think, um, I, I remember one of the happiest moments I ever had as a kid my dad took us squirrel hunting and rabbit hunting, not a lot, but enough to at least introduce us to it. And out of his four sons, I was the only one that, that ever took up hunting. And and basically, um, I was hunting. I, I loved hunting. and But we weren't very good at it. Dad wasn't really a hunter. He, he, had a, he had a couple of guns, and he killed some deer in his time. But he just really, that wasn't what he had self-identified as. He was, that wasn't his thing. But at least he, he made an effort to get us out there. But I remember one time we'd been hunting a number of different times that fall, me three or four times for different things, never got anything. But one day we we we, we, um, we saw rabbit tracks going into this big junk pile, you know, in the woods. That, you know, the farmers always had junk pile and, and or, or junk piles. But anyway, th- this time it was snow, so you could tell there's, there's, there's got to be a rabbit in that pile. And Dad said something like, Go, go go jump on top there. And Dad knew enough about rabbits that um so often you jump on something, nothing happens, nothing happens. Then you walk away and you wait. Then poof, out, out pops that rabbit. Well, my dad must wasn't a great hunter, but he was a hell of a shot. And that rabbit came out and never had a chance. Pop, and it was, it was, you know <laughs> he, he had it. And I remember being so happy that that we got something. And and I and then back and I think. That is the hunter's heart. You know, the, if it does something for you, it, you aren't happy this animal died. You're happy you got it. And there's, a, there's a difference there that hunters understand. And th- another, another memory I have that really made me realize how much I loved this was um, when I started taking my, young, my oldest daughter, I started taking her goose hunting when she was not quite three. I'd take her along and wow. put her yeah. on, a, on a stool. I'd, you know, I'd just carry her out in the, the stool and we'd go to this, this public hunting grounds where the geese would fly over every now and then. And I'd stand underneath this this big white, it was a uh, big, big bur oak. And I remember um, by the time she was four, just the next year, what was fascinating, you could, I could tell, out of the three daughters I have, I could tell later when I started taking other ones along, 
that Leah's the one who's in a hunt because when when um Leah would would sit in that on that chair or just stand by by the chair or I had a wagon I'd pull all the junk out and I called it the kids all terrain vehicle and I just pulled this wagon out there with some decoys and stuff and then, then the kids would sit in that wagon and but Leah would always and there I could tell when there's geese in the air because it's like little antenna her ears would turn focus. And I'd look that direction, and then you'd see that V coming. And she could hear it long before I could hear it. Yeah. And, and then it didn't surprise me that when, as she got older, she kept wanting to go hunting with me. The other two, I'd drag them along. But, you, you know, the, the defining moment for all three of them when I figured the difference was um, I was seeing that difference between her and them. But that really sealed it. One time we called in this big flock. And, and uh-huh. when you're below a flock that sits descending... There's nothing like that yeah. as a hunter. I don't think there's anything that quite matches this, except maybe a bugling elk. But anyway, just, just when that when they came in, dropped in the range, I stood up, and right before I started sighting, I looked down, and Leah was watching these geese, my oldest daughter. My other two daughters, Carson and Ellie, both had their heads down <laughs> and their hands over their ears. Yep. They knew it was coming. The shot's yep. going to start. And I realized Leah's a hunter. Ellie and Leah, Ellie and Carson, no, that's not going to be their thing, and it never was. I mean, but the thing is, what's good about that though, those experiences that they got to see how important this was to me and their sister, and then they got to eat that stuff. And we brought brought the geese home and brought the fish home. But they had, they, they all they all fish, but um, but again, Leah was a serious fisherman, and the other two will fish, but it's not. Only now in recent years does my youngest daughter want want me to take her fishing. She's understanding now that this is something that she that she she's now realizing this is too important to, to be missing. So yeah. now I've been taking her fishing more often. But it took, you know, she's almost thirty years old now, but now she's getting that interest. Yeah, I, I just love those stories and can listen to them forever because there is the difference. That this is why I'm sad that people don't get a chance to try the outdoor. The ones that don't ever get a chance mm-hmm. is that we talked about running. I've put in a, several miles since we've been here, mm-hmm. but there's nothing stood out to me. I don't really, didn't make any big memories, right. and I like to golf. Right. Right. And I've hit I don't know how many million golf shots, and yeah. hardly any of them stick out to me. Maybe it's just because right. I'm not very good. Right. But the hunting memories. I mean, I wrote an article about a store, a squirrel hunt. You mentioned squirrels, where I begged my dad to take me out, and it was like freezing temperatures, but he still took me out. Mm-hmm. I mean, that miserable squirrel hunt left an impression on me for life. That yeah. I that yeah. I that. And your your goose hunt and your you know just seeing your your daughters kind of come of age as hunters or not being hunters mm-hmm. and that's something that the outdoors to me offers more than just about yeah. anything and it's, it's, it's there's some real complexities with yeah. this stuff and and I know I probably cut it off but um the, the one thing I really um I love talking about those kind of things because when I sit in different seminars different presentations and they talk about introducing kids to hunting and exposing them to the, to hunting, I think. You can expose them all you want, but you have to realize that not everyone's going to be a hunter. Yeah. And and, 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 and there's just nothing you can, you can't, you can't force love. And it doesn't matter if it's love of another person, love of a recreation, love of a profession. You can't force it. And and I, at least I knew that. So I never, I never ever guilt trip my other two daughters into going. There's times I forced them to go just because I didn't have a babysitter. And they and I, I said I'm sorry, you guys, but we have to go. You have to go with me. And they'd 
be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> my four-year-old, when she was, I remember one time she was, she cried all the way out to the goose blind, you know, just, oh, wow. and, and, but then eventually got her to calm down and then she took a nap and we, and I promptly missed a goose. That was our one chance. And, <laughs> but, you know, but that's, I, I like to think though, that all those memories that someday they'll, they'll still mean something to them that your dad at least did something with them. Yeah. And they, and they, they probably have a lot more memories than they've even shared with you yet. Oh, that, that, yeah. Probably so. Yeah. 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 You know, Cause it, there's lots of things that, you know, you, you, your parents never knew what, a, what an impression you made on them. And I like to think that, um, well, you know, I hope, I hope not, I hope I had the same impact on them yep. that, that, um, they, they, it, it made, it, it impressed them in a way that they couldn't understand at the time, but as adults, they go, wow, that dad was okay after all, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm certain that's the case. So I think that's the perfect way to end this conversation. Great. And uh, I think uh, we, we could certainly sit here and talk for hours on it, yeah. but I uh, appreciate you being on for sure. And I think people really enjoy hearing your perspective and your long career, long successful career in doing this. So thanks for what you're doing and keep doing it because well, I, I know a lot of people really appreciate well, it. Well, it's always nice to be recognized. All right. <laughs> thanks, Pat. Wow. What a great conversation with Pat. And I, I could have talked with him for hours and having listened to it a second time, I just really, really enjoyed that conversation with him. I mean, what were, what were some of your favorite moments, Mike? Well, I mean, obviously, when you're talking to somebody that's old, I know you just had a birthday, but when he starts talking about the trail timer, that really takes me back, you know, of of all those times that you would actually hoof it out in the woods just to check a simple little stopwatch with a string across the trail. I mean, it, what a wonderful, you know, moment to go back and think about. But I guess the most important thing that I really appreciated uh, from Pat's interview was how he talked about his children and how it was okay to not have every single child completely immersed in hunting. I mean, you know, as well as I do, I have three children. My middle daughter does not hunt. And um, what I've always said though, is that even though my child might not hunt, they are a non-hunter, but at least they're not an anti-hunter. And the more people that understand the, the heritage of hunting, I think the better off we are. So I really appreciated that point. Yeah. I, I, kind of thought those might be some of your favorite moments and i was thinking that whenever him and i were talking and i loved hearing some of the the old stories he talked about uh, tree stands and being a big part of the tree stand safety movement uh, it's funny you kind of you kind of called pat old there and i want to point out pat if you're listening to this that was mike and not me so when i eventually introduce you to you can deal with him uh, <laughs> but, but we are all old compared to the technology and things that people use today when they're out there hunting and that was that was really fun talking to pat about that because he has seen so much i mean I mean, he was actually all of us that are doing the show here hunted at a time when tree stands were the ones you built into the tree. They weren't anything like what we have the pleasure of using today. And to think that Pat was involved with tree stand safety and just his whole career path that he followed and to still be a great outdoor writer today and, and just a really fun person to hang out with. Um, I, I really enjoyed that interview and I, I hopefully uh, our audience can relate to a lot of that as well. Um, so, uh, with that, uh, time to start thinking about the week ahead. What do you have on tap for this week, Mike? Do you, have you found that vehicle yet? Um, I'm, I'm still tossing around what I want because again, it's, it's function, you know, as well as I do, I, I have a long commute every day and, um, I still have to think about gas prices and, and being able to still pursue hunting and be able to get off road when I need to. So it's definitely going to be a truck. It's just picking the right one. Um, 
also I really, and you know as well as uh, about this and everyone that's out there listening doesn't, but during gun season, I found these really impressive rubs on the state game lands here in Pennsylvania. And I hung a, a trail, like a, well, I'm a, I said trail timer again. I see I'm st- I got that stuck in my head. I, <laughs> I am old because um, I had multiple ones, but uh, I have a game camera uh, hanging out in the, in the game lands. I'm really, really excited to go and check it. Uh, so I'd like to go and collect that this week and see what pictures I have. Yeah, so hopefully you get that vehicle figured out soon. And obviously gas mileage is, uh, and gas isn't exactly cheap in Pennsylvania, at least compared to Ohio. Um, so hopefully you get that figured out. I, you know, for me too, you, you mentioned getting out and checking cameras. And uh, I've been trying to take advantage of the good weather we've had. I've been able to run outside, which is I'm trying to stay in shape. Uh, I, I dropped more than 40 pounds. I weighed more than 40 pounds a year ago than what I weigh today. And I'm trying to keep that off. And it's not easy with the holidays and the show season and winter all kind of colliding. Uh, it's, it's hard to eat well and stay in shape. So I'm trying to do that. But I've been thinking about uh, getting out and starting to kick around a little bit and see where the turkeys are at on the property. And, and it won't be too long. We start looking for antler sheds too. So looking forward to that. And uh, uh, maybe I can work some of that into my schedule this week because I don't have any travel planned. To, but uh, So I think we're on the same page in terms of trying to get some fresh air. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's, it's, it's good to get out. I mean, you, you want to kind of blow off the dust and, you know, I have a little bit of cabin fever. So to get out and breathe some fresh air, I think would be a very, very rewarding prospect for the week for me. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully it won't be raining. Like it's, it's just been raining steady. It's been warm, but it's been raining steady pretty much throughout the whole Midwest and Northeast. But, uh, at any rate, uh, I'll just say this though, Mike, Mike, thank you for your, this is your first show as the co-host. I appreciate you doing this. And I think, uh, the show's only going to get better as you and I figure this out, just as back when we were uh, creating the, the, your your hunting film back in the day i think we got a little bit better as time went on with that as well so i just i thank you again for for being on here and looking forward to a number of more episodes with you here in the future no you're very welcome and i thank you for the offer I and mean, it's, it's really good to be able to get back together with you and do something now that we're so far apart it's it's, it's something i will look forward to Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it as well. And with that, folks, I just want to remind you again to please contact me with your ideas and stories. You can do that right through the reddogroad.net website. Uh, So be sure to do that. Don't be afraid to reach out. Tell me what you think of the show. Also, uh, consider subscribing to the show. You can subscribe on iTunes or or Stitcher and consider leaving us a review as well because that'll only make the show get better. Uh, So with that, I want to thank you again for joining and look forward to sharing another story with you sometime very soon. I hope you all have a great week, everyone. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Red Dog Road Podcast. If you like what you heard here, please consider subscribing and telling your friends. You can also visit the website and blog at reddogroad.net.